Hey, what's up, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Fire Below Zero podcast. On today's show, we have Jillian from Montana Money Adventures, and she just has such an incredible story, and she has been through the gamut. She grew up in poverty, she traveled abroad, she adopted four kids and raised a kid of her own, so she has truly done some incredible things, but she was also able to hit financial independence at age 32. And this isn't on some crazy outside salary. She was not making millions and millions of dollars a year. She was making an average American income, her and her husband. So I really think you guys are going to enjoy this story and just be inspired and know that this is a possible journey for me. So I start off the interview by asking Jillian to just take us back to the early days of Jillian and how her financial journey got started. Hope you enjoy. Ready. Aim. Fire. It really started when I was probably about 10 or 12. My mom was in just a really difficult and kind of unfortunate marriage and relationship. And I, I desperately wanted out. It's probably in sixth or seventh grade. And I just remember begging her, like, please, like, we have to leave. We can't, we can't stay here. We can't do this. And she's always been very pragmatic. And she said, Jillian, I can't raise three kids on my own. So this is what we have. And I just went upstairs and I like cried hot tears into my pillow. And I just very crystal clear realized money gives you choices. Money gives you freedom. And I desperately, desperately wanted more choices and I wanted more opportunities and I just wanted more freedom. So for me, that didn't mean like financial independence. That didn't mean retire early. That just meant I had enough money to escape and create a different life. A lot of people on this journey typically find this concept much later. It's typically after something bad has happened or, you know, someone loses a job, then people start to dive down this content. And you found it at the age of 10 or 12. That is just amazing. So Is that something that you implemented as soon as you started working? You were always intentional about your spending. You were always intentional about saving. Like, how did you go about it when you actually started making money? I think I was always a little bit of a saver. I was always the kid that that squirreled away any birthday money or Christmas money. I was always trying to, like, beg for chores so that I could earn a quarter or 50 cents. So the saving part came really easily. For me, it was a big shift in mindset. You know, we had grown up under the poverty line and it's just, it's kind of a learned hopelessness where you think things are hard and I don't have a lot of options, but there's a gap between I don't have a lot of options and I have no options. And I just try to keep that encouragement that like, I don't have a lot of options and I definitely don't have every option, but whatever opportunity I have, I'm going to like take that for all it's worth. And I'm going to go all in on that. So it was, yeah, it was getting a job when I was really young and it was working as many hours as they would give me and doing as well as I could in school. I also think that when you grow up in kind of a chaotic environment, sometimes the tendency is to overcompensate on things that you can control and you can be successful and stable in. And so I was definitely, um, I definitely overcompensated in the rest of my life. And so what do you mean by that? Like, what did you overcompensate in? Did you go buy a fancy car right when you turned 16 and a half? Did you go on expensive trips? So what exactly did that overcompensation look like for you? No, it was more because at home it was a little chaotic. It was a little difficult. So I played every sport. So I went up for every extracurricular activity. So I got an A in every class. Okay. <laughs> so I tried to get as many hours as I could. I tried to just be as like high functioning and successful with the little opportunities I did have because I couldn't, I couldn't fix my family life. So fast forward past young teenager odd job Jillian into, I guess, young adult Jillian. So did you go to college and what did you study and... Did you choose that major from a financial standpoint or from passion or how did that look like for you? So I definitely had a very limited belief and mindset. I just thought I'll never make a lot of money. Like that seemed absurd and crazy. We we had never made a lot of money growing up. 
And so I didn't even have the hope for that. I didn't have any expectation for that. So I decided, well, because I'm not going to make a lot of money, it definitely was, it wasn't even like, well, I might not. I just, nope, it's not going to happen. So I might as well go with something that I love because high income is a farce in my life. So I, I went to like a little Bible college and I studied um, just kind of like biblical uh, theology and ministry and stuff. And I didn't even finish. I did like two years and me and my husband got married. He joined the army and we we went off into the military life. Yeah, like that's one thing that I've heard a lot of time in this community is people that, you know, just don't believe that they can do it. And it's a set of beliefs that, you know, growing up maybe in the household that you did, a lot of people feel like, you know, earning a lot of money is just something that's not in the cards for them. And that's something that me and Cody always talk about on this podcast, that it's just about getting those beliefs right. It's just about getting certain skills and, you know, Anything is possible. So, you know, hearing your story, where you started from and seeing where you're at today, it's just night and day. So let's go back to when you actually get married and you guys are, you know, probably not earning a high income. Did you have to bring your husband on board to the type of mindset that you had in being intentional with money and saving? Is that something that was always in the plans or did it take some time to bring him on board? He definitely was more of a spender than I was. He had about $35,000 in student loan debt and about 12000 in credit card debt when we got married. I, unbeknownst to me, actually had like ten or 11000 in medical debt um, from when I was in high school. It was in my social security number, so that was mine. And we really started by just dreaming and planning. Like, what did we want to do with our lives? What was really important to us? What did we want to accomplish? And then we kind of reverse engineered. Okay, so what are we going to have to do with our money to make that happen? Age is this. So did you hop right into your two-year Bible school straight out of high school? So I'm guessing that's like 18 to 20. And then your husband sounds like he might have been a little bit older. So at what age did you get married? Because it seems like you're pretty young to already have this like frugality and save a lot of your income mindset. Yes, I got married at the ripe old age of 19, and my husband was 24, um, right after my first year of college. Okay, so at age 24, he's probably settled into his job, and I, I don't really know, did he get his master's, or was it a four-year degree? When did he actually start like working in a traditional sense? It was a year after we got married, he joined the Army. So he had worked some odd jobs to save up for college, he had been like done professional moving, he had done janitorial work, a whole bunch of different things. And I think his degree took five years. So, Okay. So, I mean, straight out of the gate, you guys get married. And what did your financial position look like? Were you saving like 50% of your income? Or I can't imagine it was easy just coming straight into your first job. You were probably in one of the first jobs out of your school. And he was just getting into the army, like you said before. So what did the financial situation look like for you guys? Well, the first year we were married, I had saved up about $8,000 while I was in high school. Definitely in that like money buys me options mindset. And so when I went to college, I bought a $5,000 camper and I lived in that camper for the first year. And then my husband and I got married and then we both moved into the camper and we spent our whole first married year living in a camper. And this is, this is 16 years ago. Like tiny houses were not a thing. The van life was not a thing. It was not cool. Like, we just looked like poor people. <laughs> and it was a really ugly old camper. It had, like, orange shag and, like, orange floral prints everywhere. It was, um, but it was awesome, to be honest. Like, I think living in a camper was, like, one of the best ways to spend the first year of marriage. You definitely have to love each other a lot to <laughs> hang out in a small camper cramped together for an entire year. <laughs> So that definitely tested the limits of your love, which is, it's good to know at the beginning of a marriage. Yeah, it's great for conflict resolution, is you cannot just stay mad at a person when you share 200 square feet. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit. Um, let's talk about children. Seeing your blog and hearing your story, it's clear that children play a huge role in your life. So can you tell us, you know, when did children come into the picture and how did that affect you guys' financial outlook? 
So on my husband and I's very first date, I've never I've never been a person to waste time. Um, I brought a list of questions, and one of those questions was, "How do you feel about adoption?" And he was like, "I love the idea of adoption." I was like, "Okay, check." How do you feel about adoption from foster care? And he was like, I love the idea of that too. Actually, I have a foster brother. And I was like, perfect. You now can schedule date number two. (laughs) (laughs) So it was definitely always part of the plan. We ended up adopting our first son, who was originally Adam's foster brother. He, oddly enough, was like at our wedding. And we adopted him. We started the process right after I turned 21. Because his social worker called us. We weren't, we weren't ready. We weren't really thinking about it. We'd only been married for about a year and a half, two years. But she said, I can't find another placement for him. So I've called everyone. Either you guys can adopt him or I'm going to put him in a group home and he'll just age out and never have a family. And he was 11. And I remember we went away for my 21st birthday to this resort. And I just remember thinking, oh, my gosh, like I'm 21. He's 11. There's no way we can do this. He has all of these needs. This is I'm I'm in way over my head. But if we're the only ones, then we'll do it. We'll figure it out. Wow. So, I mean, that is just so amazing that you had the guts to adopt an 11 year old when you were 21 because I'm 22 now and I feel like I am not emotionally ready to take care of another human being, especially one that's 11 years old. Like that's when they start talking back. They have their own <laughs> opinions. It's not like you're just spoon feeding them and carrying them around on your back and listening to them cry. Like an 11 year old is a real human at that point. <laughs> they can, they can, <laughs> they can have their own opinions. They can talk back. So, I mean, that's, that's a huge undertaking, but Clearly, it was worth it to you, and it was Adam's foster brother, so he definitely had a special place in your heart. But from a financial standpoint, were you like, this is going to have a huge impact on your life? Were you worried in that sense, like that you guys weren't going to be able to save as much money as you've been before? Or just what was your whole outlook on the situation? Actually, adopting an almost teenager from foster care was a much easier financial transition than when we had a baby or when we adopted a sibling group of three because he was in school all day long and he was old enough. We kind of rotated shifts. We moved our work schedules around a little bit that, you know, he would be home for maybe half an hour before we got home from work. And that whole process was pretty great. We, we did end up moving into a bigger place, but we did some house hacking and got a roommate. And we ended up actually saving a lot more money than we would have if we would have stayed in our little two-bedroom apartment. Having a baby or adopting three kids, on the other hand, was enormously financially challenging. Okay, so that is something that we're definitely not just going to gloss over. It looks like, you know, based on your story, you guys went from having one child to five children in less than two years. So what drives a person like what was you guys reason for this and how did that look like for your family? Like I said, I was always really passionate about adoption and especially adoption from foster care. But any given time, there's about 100,000 kids waiting for a family, not just in foster care, like their parents rights have been terminated and they're just waiting for someone to show up. And the ones that are hardest to adopt are older kids like Micah and sibling groups because everyone's like, well, I could take like one two year old. I could probably do that. But 11 year old, I don't know. Three kids, I don't know. It gets a little, a little tricky. So we had always planned to adopt again. We had one biological child and yeah, we got a three pack. They were, they were half siblings. Uh, three was probably not my ideal number, but that's that's how many there were. So I said, we can do this. And honestly, being Micah's mom for all those years really stretched me and it grew me. And I developed a skill set that I just didn't have before. So it, it was enormously difficult, but we made it happen. And then a week after the state officially asked us to adopt, I found out I was pregnant. And at that point, like, my head had barely been above water. Like, 
my husband was working a really stressful job. I had quit my job to take care of these four little kids. And I just, I had a little bit of a mommy meltdown. Like, and I just like cried. I was like, I can't do this. Like, this is already so hard. I can't add a baby to this. And we had just gone away on, we do these little life planning retreats because we're geeky like that. And on our little life planning retreat, I had said, you know what? I think that, I think we're like seven years, maybe five years. And then we could like really retire. Well, it'll be perfect. And after I got that positive pregnancy test, I said, new plan, you're leaving your job this year. That's our new plan. We'll take a year off for sure, and then we'll just see how it goes. Okay, so something that you just mentioned in passing that I definitely don't want to gloss over is that you said, casually, we're going to retire in five to seven years. So what were you guys doing? Were you making a million dollars? Was your husband the the general of the army? And what was going on there? We actually never... We would never hire earners. Like I said, I got a degree in like biblical studies. He went in as an E1 in the army. He ended up medically retiring when he was an E4 10 years later. So never made a ton of money. I worked for Starbucks for a long time. I worked for a church for a while. I did commission sales. We just, we very rarely broke like in our actual double W2, like $60,000. Uh, with some of his med- our military benefits maybe higher, but we had this dream. I had this dream probably of being able to pay cash for a house. So we had always lived just on one of our salaries. Even though salaries weren't high, I said, we'll figure it out. That's just what we're going to do. And drew a hard line in the sand. And eventually we were able to save a hundred percent of my salary plus like 20 or 30% of his. So, we had saved all of this cash. We invested it at probably the right time, like at the very bottom of the market. Uh, we had moved overseas. And when we came back, we had about $200,000 saved. I was able to save my first 100000 by the time I was 24. So we had kind of a little head start. Um, but when we came back, we had enough money to buy a decent house for cash. We could have bought in our area at that time like the decent houses were going for about 150000 And then we found the house that we're currently living in. And it was a very sad, ugly, forsaken home. Um, and we put in an offer for $50,000 cash. And we had never owned it before. We had never done renovation work. We had no skill set. And there was no contractor saying, I will totally take care of this for you. We just watched a lot of YouTube videos and figured it out. So we bought this one for cash, and then we ended up eventually buying two more rentals. Okay, Jillian, so I feel like we kind of skipped over a few years, or maybe we're just kind of jumping back and forth in the timeline. So you adopted Micah at 21, but when did you ditch the camper life if you bought this first house when you were 24? sounds like there's a three-year gap, but that's when you accumulated all of your children. So I'm kind of just curious to hear. No, we rented for 10 years. So we bought our very first house when I was 29. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So we had my, we got Micah when I was 22. The whole process took a year. And then when I was about 25, we had our oldest son. We moved to Germany. We traveled everywhere for four years. And then we came back when I was 29 and we bought our first house. And then it was two years after that, that we got the sibling group of three. Okay. Okay. I was kind of confused there with the timeline. <laughs> I was like, there's no way you had five kids in a 200 square foot. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do travel in a pop-up camper, which is 24 feet by like eight feet wide. We just got back from a 10 week trip through 10 national parks. So all seven of us did live in a pop-up camper, which is not nearly as nice as a regular camper for 10 weeks. It was like, I think it's 150 square feet. <laughs> seven, seven people. That is super intentional. So my question is, you know, when you guys got back, you know, bought the house for 50000 I'm guessing that you guys were buying a home for three people at the time. So when you guys actually, you know, had more children come into your life, did you guys plan to move to a, uh, to a bigger space or how did you guys navigate the amount of people in the household versus the square footage that you originally had? 
We had planned um, to adopt before we bought our house. So we wanted a house that we thought would kind of accommodate more kids. We did not realize that would mean four more children. So after we found out that we were adopting and found out we were pregnant, we thought about buying a bigger house. And really it was just looking like it, it was gonna cost about another 700 to $1,000 a month to really upgrade the amount of space that would seem like worth moving for. So instead, we just got rid of half of our stuff. And it turns out our house is the perfect size for our people. It just was not the perfect size for all of our crap. <laughs> I love that. So what did you decide to do? Did you just go on a selling spree and get rid of like 90% of your material items? or? Oh, no. Selling would have been way too much work. We just gave it all away. Wow. <laughs> and how much stuff are we talking? Like, did you have a storage unit? Did you have an attic full of stuff? How extreme hoarder were you going? I wouldn't say that we were hoarders, but it was seven people. Our house is about 1,650 square feet. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of stuff. So we got rid of half of it. And I would say our stuff nicely fits into our home now. Like it's comfortable now, but it was, it was full. It was really full. I think part of my challenge and the reason I had resisted minimalism was because growing up poor, I was just so terrified of letting something go that I needed or that I might need or that I might need to replace. And it took a lot for me to switch that mindset. And now my mindset is like, I can't have any lazy wow. stuff. So if I don't wear a shirt for months, that's a lazy shirt. I need the kind of shirt that I'm going to wear every single week. Like that's a hardworking shirt. If I don't read a book for three years, that's a lazy book. Wow. I need the book that I'm going to crack every six months. Or stuffies. Oh my gosh, my kids and their stuffed animals. I'm like, if you have two stuffed animals, those are two hardworking stuffed animals. If you each have 10, there's eight lazy ones in that group. And the lazy ones just need to find a different home where they can work hard because it's not happening in our house. And that's that's something that I think I personally struggle with because, you know, I grew up just holding on to a bunch of stuff because you never know when you're going to need these items. So, right, most people have that mindset of just holding on to things that they haven't used in years, which is just, you know, insane. So real quick. I want to touch on something that I read on your blog, which is your three by three principle or something like that. Can you touch on that really quickly? Yeah. So when we tried to get our kids on board with this, and I think that everyone who has kids, especially little kids, will relate in that it's like torture for them to get rid of stuff. It's so painful. There's crying. There's tears. It's like, it's like you're threatening to cut off a limb or something by removing <laughs> their toys. It's such a meltdown. So I went to my kids and I said, listen, I, I think this is my fault. I've just given you too much stuff and there's too much stuff in your room and there's no way for you to keep it clean. So the rooms were just packed full of toys. It was like a tornado hit a daycare. It was such a disaster. <laughs> and there's no, and my kids were little at this time. I mean, they're like two, they were about two to seven. And I said, clean up and put away everything that you can take care of. Everything you can pick up, pick up, and don't worry about the rest. I'll take care of it, and I'll go put it on the shelf. And so because we had cleaned out so much of our stuff, I was able to, like, buy a shelf at Costco, and I had room to put it in my basement, and I just took everything that they couldn't clean up, and I put it down on the shelf. And it turns out that my kids can pick up approximately three toys. Like, this is, this is their bandwidth for what they can clean up. And I said, that's fine. You just have three toys that you can play with. And once you're finished picking one up, we'll go put it on the shelf and we'll swap it out. We'll do a toy swap. And I don't pick up toys. Like, that's amazing. I don't pick up toys. I have five little kids and I don't touch toys. So coming from a strong financial footing, both you and your husband, I'm just curious to hear as a parent what you're doing to teach your kids about money. Are they getting allowances? Are they paying for half of their toys? Or just what are some of the strategies you're using so your kids might grow up with this fine mindset. We do a lot with our kiddos. So from one to about four is just learning how to work, learning how to pick things up, learning how to wipe things down. We give them little tasks 
and I usually give them a reward at the end. So if you wipe down the kitchen table with a baby wipe, you get a chocolate chip kind of thing. And then about four to seven, eight, we really teach them to start to earn money. So they get to actually earn money for their chores and they get to save it. And I never tell my kids no. They're 100% responsible for managing their money, for budgeting their money, and figuring out what's a good value. So we talk about it a lot. Like, do you think this is a good value? Do you think that you'll be sad if you spend your money on this? And sometimes we talk about it after the purchase. But I never say, well, you can't just buy that. Like, I don't micromanage their money. Simply because we all make so many money mistakes. It takes so many failures for us to really get it and be like, oh, this way I spent money made me happy and this way I regretted. So I want them to have, as weird as it sounds, a lot of regrettable choices early in life and learn how to spend their money wisely when the money amount is small and it's easily fixable. And then my oldest just turned 10 and 10 in my house is when you get to start investing. So he opened up his Roth IRA and now we get to learn this whole world of compound interest and index funds. And I give them more opportunity in our rental properties and doing jobs that he gets earned income for. Wow. <laughs> I think that's awesome that, I mean, this is something you only hear in the FI community. At age 10 is when you start investing. <laughs> that's when he opens his Roth IRA. That's when he has exposure to handling the day-to-day -day operations of the rental property. So, I mean, just learning that at such a young age is so powerful. I have no doubts in my mind that all of your children will grow up with a very solid financial footing. And just seeing the way that you and your husband operate, I think that's, that's a super huge life hack. And a lot of people never figure out what makes them happy. I know people who make in the multi-six-figure range and they're miserable they're working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. They never see their family and they just never figure out how to actually use the money in a way that works for them. So I think that's just awesome, Julian. It's also, I think it's so important to start young investing for two reasons. The starting is the hardest part. And for any listeners like who just hasn't started because they're scared and they don't know what to invest in and they don't know how to set it up. It just, it feels like an enormous obstacle. So I figure by starting my kids at 10, they have the account and it's just easy to start. Like it's not hard to up your contribution monthly, but getting that first account set up can be a huge obstacle. And the other advantage to starting early is that after you go through a few ups and downs and ups and downs in the market, you start to get it. You start not to be terrified when the market drops 20 or 30 or 40%. You start not to be so optimistic when it like goes sky high. So I'm hoping at 10, that gives him 15 years of market cycles before he starts to invest real money into his accounts for him to kind of get a feel of how this thing works. Because I've known a lot of people who started too late and they started when they were earning a lot of money. So they invested a lot of money and it freaked them out. When the market dropped, it was their first market drop. When it went high, it was the first high, and I would rather him learn that at like 13 or 14. Wow, starting this journey at age 10, like just picture what, you know, your son's life is going to look like, you know, 10, 20 years from now. That is just so amazing to me. To switch gears a little bit, uh, my question comes from your blog. Like you guys have traveled to over 27 countries. And you guys did this in and around, you know, your work life. So how did you guys go about this? Was this a plan that you guys had from the start? Is this something that, you know, kind of lended itself to your husband's career and was something that you guys had to do? Or this was just an intentional choice on you guys' part? Traveling abroad had always been a dream of mine. I think I bought my first travel book when I was 12. And I started highlighting it and I started budgeting because I was kind of a budget geek even then and saying like, so if I stayed at this hostel and this hostel and I ate at this place, like down to where I would eat every day, planning it. And so that was, that was always a dream, but it just felt like, it felt kind of unattainable. I thought, well, maybe we'll be able to go for like four weeks. Hopefully I'll be able to go for eight weeks. And even though I didn't have a clear path of how I would do that, we were still saving towards it and we were still planning towards it. And it was, I didn't, 
sometimes I see people just think, well, that's not realistic. So they let the dream die. I hold on to a lot of very unrealistic dreams and I continue to make progress on it, even when I'm not sure what the roadmap is going to be to get me all the way there. I just keep making steps. So my husband was considering leaving the army and getting out and doing something else. And we were living in DC at the time and he knew the husband of the person who assigned duty stations for his MLS. And this soldier told his wife, Hey, Adam is such a great soldier. Like we have to keep him in the Corps. We can't, we can't let him leave. And so she said, okay, if he stays in, I will give him any open duty station in the world. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, oh, in the world, you say? And so we looked at a map and the very center of Europe was Germany. And the very center of that was Heidelberg. And I said, okay, we'll go there. If, if you'll give us any spot, we'll do four years there. And so because we had saved up so much money for this specific dream, we were able to really leverage all of the vacation time he had, all of the vacation time he was going to earn, and a little bit of the extra pay from being abroad. And we traveled every month. We probably, I don't, I don't even know, we probably did over 50 weeks of travel over the four years we were there. That is just absolutely incredible. So, I mean, you are just crushing limiting belief after limiting belief. People say, I can't hit financial independence. I have kids. Crushed. <laughs> I need a six-figure income in order to retire at a young age. Crushed. I can't travel the world because I have X number of children or I don't have the money. I can't take it off from work. Crushed. So, I mean, your story is just absolutely incredible from any angle. And I know just from reading your blog that you actually hit your financial independence number when you were 32, I believe. Mm -hmm. So what does your current life look like? I'd love to hear your financial situation from a bird's eye view. Are you earning income right now? Are you pulling? Are you drawing down on your nest egg? Or you, you, I know you have some side hustles. You have real estate income. So I just love to hear the whole picture in one. So our goal right now to make sense of our numbers, our goal is to live a life that's so perfectly aligned to everything we care about that we would never retire from it. Like that's the direction that we're moving from um, or towards. So our current finances, our expenses are really low. I mean, we don't have a mortgage. We don't have any debt. We don't have any car payments. We don't have student loans. We live in one of the most beautiful, amazing places in the country. We live right outside Glacier National Park in Montana. And even though we don't have jobs, I don't have enough free time to do everything. And I feel bad. People will be like, oh, have you done this hike? Have you done, have you rafted that river? Have you kayaked over here? And I was like, I haven't even been there <laughs> once. Because there's so much to do. There's so many great free things that it's an amazing lifestyle that hardly costs any money. When you have the time, it hardly costs any money. So our oh. spending probably averages about $1,700 a month, maybe $2,000 a month. It's kind of just our run-of-the-mill month. Our income, my husband was retired from the Army, so he makes $14.50 a month from that, which is tax-free, so that also helps. Um, our rental income is about $12.50 a month, so that gives us $26.50, which is far more than we spend. Um, we also have about $200,000 in investments, so I could pull from that. That would be about $800 a month. But because we don't need it, we haven't pulled any from it. And we usually keep about $50,000 cash on hand. Just if we need to buy a new car or replace a roof or something like that. You definitely have everything together. I mean, you have five from a cash flow perspective, which that's what I'm trying to hit. I'm trying to get out of my W-2 job by early next summer at the latest. <laughs> so you're already at what I call cash flow five, where like you don't even need the market could crash by 90% and you still have cash flow from your rental properties and from your husband's. Is it a pension? I'm, I'm not exactly sure how that works. I know you get like a fully vetted pension if you do 20 years, but is it kind of like a prorated pension since I think you said he did 10 years in the army? Yeah. So he was medically retired after having surgery on both of his feet. 
So at 10 years, it's less than it would have been if he was at 20. It is kind of prorated to some degree, but it, it is what it is. Like, I think he might have stayed in longer. Financially, it probably would have made more sense to stay in longer, but it wasn't an option. So sometimes when you have those obstacles, you have to very quickly say, okay, so what does this make possible? Like, this isn't what I would have picked. wasn't necessarily maybe what I wanted, but what does it make possible? And just go from there. So seeing that you don't have to worry about money whatsoever, I guess, what are you and your husband's plans for the next X number of years, say the next five years? I mean, I know you're working on the blog, which is awesome. So what does your day-to-day life look like? I mean, you have all the time in the world. I know you have kids, so obviously there's some some time devoted to them going on awesome trips, hikes, and stuff like that. But what is the short slash long-term plan, and what does your day-to-day life look like? So we spend a lot of time thinking about what our ideal day is. And it's actually one of my focus, like mentoring questions. You can get that for free on my site. I have a whole bunch of tools to kind of help people figure that out. But our ideal day, I like to do a little bit of reading in the morning. My husband, he's so sweet. He gets up as a baby and then he comes downstairs and brings me a cup of tea in bed. And I sit in bed and I read and I drink tea. And then we get up. We like to go to the gym for 90 minutes and we work out. We come home, we kind of take care of things, we do a few chores, we hang out with the kids. Oh, I do, I write in the morning for about an hour before we go to the gym. I usually like to, in the summertime like this, I like to sit out in the garden. We have apple trees, so I sit under our apple trees and do a little writing. I prefer like one to four hours of work in the afternoon. Just something where I feel like I'm creating something, I'm having great conversations, I'm making something, a couple hours of that. And then, yeah, if my kids are in school, they get home at four. So we hang out at home, we do some fun stuff, we might go out and do a quick hike, we do dinner and put the kids to bed and then me and my hubby have a little bit alone time. Or I record a podcast interview (laughs) while he watches a superhero movie. (laughs) Awesome. So, Jillian, just, you know, reading your blog and just diving into your content, one thing that really stuck out to me is your five values. And they're just so powerful. So that's something I definitely want you to to share with the listeners. And tell us how you came about those values. Is that something that you've always had in the back of your mind? Or is that something that you just kind of produced looking back on all the things that you've been able to accomplish? I would say for us, it really started with what mattered to us. We never would have started on this journey if we didn't have this really clear vision. I knew I wanted to adopt. I knew that I wanted to travel around the world. I knew that I wanted to be able to pay cash for our first house. And so it started with that that clarity. And I think that the more clarity you have, the more motivation it gives you to do difficult things. Motivation and kind of that grit I think it actually comes from gratitude and vision. And when you have a lot of gratitude and you have a lot of vision, it gives you the grit to do difficult things that other people are like, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not doing that. I was like, well, I am going to do that because if that's what it takes to get to where I want to go, then the cost isn't too high. And I think once you have that motivation, it creates action And that action actually then kind of circles back around and it gives you more clarity because I always try to encourage people like you don't know all the things before you start. Life is a little bit like Legends of Zelda. Um, You start (laughs) off on the quest and you don't have what you need and you don't know all the information you need to know and you don't have the right tools and you don't have the resources and you don't know the right people. And the only way you get those things is by going on the journey and learning as you go and you acquire those things as you go. So I think the more action we have, the more clarity that we get. So Jillian, it seems like you're coming from this mindset of you have to do things yourself. There is no they, it's you, and there are no obstructions in your path if you don't want them to be there. Any hurdle that is in your way, you have the ability to jump over. And But that takes, like a, that takes a certain type of focus. And so you have to really 
prioritize what things matter to you, what things you want to get done, and not just meander through life hoping that great things happen to you, hoping that, oh, maybe one day I'll be able to retire. You have to be really intentional about your actions. And like TJ asked, intentional about your values. So could you just talk about what that looks like in terms of your mindset? I would start by even saying, like, retirement should not be the goal. Because retirement isn't anything but quitting something. And I think about that kind of like a garden. Like you can create space in a garden. You can you can prepare the soil. But you actually have to plant good stuff in there or else you just get weeds. You can't leave like soil empty. <laughs> and sometimes people plan the retirement is like, it'll just be empty soil. It'll be awesome. And I'm like, not if you don't plant anything good in there. Let's get a bunch of weeds growing up. And that never works. So I think you have to be really intentional about what you're planting in your life, what you're cultivating, what you're going towards because our our time and our energy and our money are so finite that you can't you can't waste it on mediocre you can't waste it on distractions when we got our three kiddos i was so overwhelmed and i would joke with my mom that i only have so many cares each day i can only care so many times so i really had to conserve my cares or else like it would be, you know, eight o'clock at night and someone's bleeding and I'm like, I don't care. Like I'm done. I'm done for the day. So I had to really readjust my standards. Like, I don't care what you wear. Uh, you want to wear a helmet to your appointment? Whatever. I don't care. You want to wear your shoes on the wrong feet? I don't care. You drop that banana on the ground and you want to pick it up and eat it? Okay. I don't care. Like I can't waste all of my cares on these little things because bigger stuff is going to come up. But I think it's true in our lives. You can only care about so many things. And you have to be really clear about what you do care about, like you care a whole lot about, and what is just everything else. So I don't really care about my car. I don't really care about what I wear. I don't really care about my hair. I don't really care about a whole bunch of things because I'm going to go all in on the things that I really care about. And I think it's about showing up and leaning into the stuff that you're like, actually, this really does matter. And that's one of the saddest things that I see is when people don't show up for really anything. They don't show up in their marriage. They don't show up in their families. They don't show up in their work. They don't show up in their health. They don't show up in their friendships. You know, what what matters? And then steal from everything that's mediocre. Everything that's not giving you that best, that most important, steal all that time and money and resources and go all in. Yeah, I just love that. And it's clear that these values are kind of what have kind of set you on your path. And that's something that is just so strong in your mindset. And that's what's helping you continue to accomplish all these goals that people look at and think like, you know, this is crazy, but it's not. You just focused on what was so important to you and you just double down on those things. And that leads to enormous success if you just stay on that path. So we will link those five values in the show notes for you guys to check out. They're just absolutely amazing. Yeah, TJ, I totally agree. And so Jillian, you just planted all of these little financial seeds of knowledge in the listeners' minds. And I just love to hear what you're growing in your garden, if you see what I did there. Um, <laughs> so what exactly are you dedicating your time towards now? I know you said you'd like focusing on big picture projects a few hours a day, but I'd just love to hear what you're growing in your garden and what weeds are you pulling out as well? So for us, financial independence definitely wasn't the finish line. I think a lot of people see it as, okay, I'll get to this point and then I'm done. I saw it as as soon as I get to this point, now the fun starts. Now I can really run this race. And I can go faster and I can go farther because I don't have like these petty distractions like, you know, paying bills and food, things like that. Like all of that's covered so I can really focus on the things that I'm passionate about. So we we have in kind of our ideal day, it's a lot of family time. It's a lot of health and travel and friends and work wise. I just really want to to encourage people how to make progress. I think that we all have a little bit of a superpower. And so once we took this mini retirement, I said, you know what? I'm only going to focus on the things that I'm absolutely best at. 
everything that I'm capable of, everything that I'm decent at, I'm going to push all of that away and I'm going to go all in on this really tiny circle of, you know, what some people call like your genius. And it's been incredible. It's been incredible because once you do just the stuff that you really, really love, that you're super passionate about and you're actually good at and fits into your lifestyle, not only do you get better at that, but more people notice and want you to do more of that. So I encourage anyone, no matter where you are in your career, say like, this is what I'm good at and cut away some of the other stuff so you can double down on that. Because the alternative is doing things that we're not really passionate about, we're not really that great at, doesn't fit our lifestyle, because then the best case scenario is people offer us more of that kind of work. Which is a little bit like, wah, wah. Um, but you have to give people the opportunity to see what you're awesome at. You have to pick yourself. I spent a lot of years waiting for someone else to notice. And now, now I get to share the things that, that I'm best at. And it has so much more impact that it did while I was working a regular nine to five job. That's one of the things that I love when people are like, how could you retire early? Like you're just wasting your life. You should be making an impact. And I'm like, my impact is a thousand fold versus when I used to sell furniture. I mean, I was decent at selling furniture. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I know a lot about like furniture construction and fabrics, but what I'm doing now, it's night and day. And in the funny, ironic thing is that when you do those things that you really love, you're passionate about, you're great at, fits your lifestyle, I think I'll actually earn more money this year than I ever did in all of those years as an employee. And now I just work a couple hours a day and I feel like my impact is like so much bigger. It's just sometimes when we do like our very highest point of contribution, we create so much more value, you know, even if we receive 10% of that value back. It's more than just putting out a bunch of mediocre work. I try to write every day, mostly because that just makes me feel sane. Even if it's not words I publish, most of it, like 90% of it, I don't publish. But I try to write every day to just clarify my thoughts. On the income side, I create a lot. I do a lot of mentoring. One of my superpowers is I'm really good at seeing the big picture at seeing the vision, helping people clarify that. I'm really good at figuring out the challenges that people face and their motivations and what's been holding them back and creating a lot of synergy so that they make a lot more progress. And through, I have just really, I probably have one conversation a day, which is about my perfect amount. But in those conversations, because they're so deep and they're so honest and they're just so transparent, I create a ton of content from that. So out of my mentoring, I pull a lot of video content and I make it applicable kind of for everyone in courses. So if they can't afford to work with me one-on-one, -on -one, they can buy the course and hopefully get, my goal is like 80% of the value at like 5% of the price. So I kind of have a three-tier system in that on the front end, I can create a ton of free content just for everyone. In my blog, I have so many free resources. Like my free resource page is literally the expression of how much I love creating things uh, because I obviously cannot stop myself. And then I have courses, which is kind of that next price point. If people are in the like, I'm a little scared to invest in myself because everyone is like at a hundred to two hundred dollars. And then I do private one on one mentoring. So Jillian, like just hearing the things that you're doing on a daily basis, it comes to my story a little bit because lately in creating a blog and starting this podcast, I found like a lot of my passion really lies here. And so do you see like the people that you're coaching and you're trying to teach how to change their whole life trajectory? Do you see them having sticking points? Because for me, that's something that I'm personally struggling with because I just feel like my job is safe and this is something that I need to do until, you know, X number of years. So can you walk us through that whole process if people have sticking points and how can they overcome them? Yeah, I think everyone has sticking points. The problem is most people aren't really good at identifying them. Even if they know at the top level 
sticking point is. So in my mentoring process, I go through all of these mentoring questions, which kind of pulls out what you really value, what's important to you, all those big picture things. And we create a master list of like, here's the change I really want to see happen. And then we go through each of those things and I ask, what's the challenge to making that happen? And people will give me their reason. Here's why I'm worried that I can't make that happen. And the first reason is never the only reason. It's always the most logical reason. So it's the one that makes the most sense. And that's what they're telling themselves. But I take that reason and then I say, okay, so what's the challenge to that? Oh, okay. So they tell me a bunch of, a bunch more stuff. And then from that, I pull kind of the nugget that I think is, is the reason in there. And I say, okay, so what's the challenge to that? And we keep going and we keep going and we keep going until they say something honest. Until they say something that's true. Because that core challenge is like a spider. And it, it leaves spider webs everywhere. Challenges will either stop people, it'll slow them down, or it will detour the heck out of them. Which is one of the most challenging things for me to see is someone putting in so much effort and so much energy and running so fast and doing all of the things on a detour because they haven't identified the challenge and they won't walk through it. Because challenges dysregulate us. It makes us feel uncomfortable. So these core actual challenges are like spiders and they're leaving spider webs everywhere. And people will spend a lot of time cleaning up the spider webs and never fully address what the challenge is. And until we pull that in the light, we can't, we can't problem solve for the actual challenge. We can't correct it. Oftentimes it'll self-correct. Some people will will say a challenge out loud and either just the act of saying it will make them go, well, I guess that's not really true. Or I'll, I'll push the challenge to the next level. So if they say, you know, I'm just really worried if I, if I step away from my job, maybe, maybe people around me will think that, that I'm lazy. So I might say, okay, imagine, imagine your five best friends, the people who love you the most, the people who believe in you the most, the people who are your friend just for you and that you stepped away from your job. Like, how would they describe you? Like, what are the five words that they would say? Would they say, gosh, you know, he's really lazy. What a lazy bum. I don't even know why I'm friends with him. Like, the only reason I was friends with him was because he did that job. And now, I'm probably not going to be friends anymore. Or, would he be so happy? So happy that, like, you're finally taking the risk. You're finally stepping out, and you're finally getting to it. Like, you're doing the stuff that you always talked about, but you were too scared to do before. And then the answer is really obvious, and we can, and then it can self-correct. Or sometimes it's a limiting, I don't even, like, to the phrase limiting belief, it's an unhelpful belief. Because beliefs can be helpful or unhelpful. And oftentimes, the beliefs that were helpful for someone else, they pass down to us, but they're not actually helpful for us. Or sometimes the beliefs that got us from point A to point B won't get us from B to C. And those can be really tricky challenges because that was a great belief. The belief that like we should be excellent and we should work hard and we should apply ourselves and that we should bring our very best work forward. That's a great belief. And that'll take you a long ways unless you're an artist. And then you'll be terrified and you'll never create anything because your first one isn't going to be your best one. And because it's messy and it's creative and you have to like struggle and try and do it again and just keep creating until you create something amazing. But unless people actually figure out what that challenge is that's holding them back, it'll just, it, it's like it floats around in the back of our mind, like those little spider webs. And we never fully address it and we never fully acknowledge it or own it. It just slows us down or detours us or stops us in our tracks. Yeah, Jillian, that's just so many actionable tips that you just gave the listeners because this is something, like I said, I'm personally struggling with and I know when I'm happiest, right? I know the things that 
are, you know, bringing me passion, bringing me fulfillment. But I have that spider back there in the back of my mind that's creating all these spider webs telling me I can't do this or I shouldn't do this now or, you know, wait five or ten more years. And it's just a belief that's probably not helpful for me in the next steps in my life. So, yeah, thank you so much for that. I think those were really actionable. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, TJ. I mean, Jillian just dropped so much financial and philosophical knowledge on us. And now we have so many seeds, I feel like I could just go full-blown Amish. (laughs) My garden could probably support me for the rest of my life with how many seeds that Jillian just dropped on the audience. So they should call you like Jillian the limiting belief destroyer or something if you were a superhero. I love it. (laughs) But so this is going to be the end of the quote-unquote formal interview, but this would not be the Fire Below Zero podcast if we didn't bring you into the Spit and Fire segment where you get to drop the hottest financial knowledge on our listeners. So are you ready for this, Jillian? Probably not. <laughs> All right. Well, we're asking anyway. <laughs> Welcome to the Spit and Fire segment where we get to pick the brains of some of the best and brightest in an effort to live better, more intentional lives. Are you ready to transform your future? What is one thing that you currently splurge on by FI standards, and why do you splurge on that item or experience, and why does it bring value to you? Oh, man. I, in some ways, I'm so not frugal. Um, Even though our spending is fairly low, when it comes to education, when it comes to personal growth, and when it comes to kind of planning, I will spend a ridiculous amount of money. Um, I committed for the first two years of my site that I would reinvest 100% of the income that came in. And it really gave me permission to just, you know, still try to find a good value for what I was buying, but really go all in on this dream. Go all in and kind of, I think about our time and our money and our energy as poker chips. And the more that we just push it all to the middle of the table. Yeah, so I, I, I spend a lot of money on that stuff. All right, Jillian, awesome. Like, I'm definitely guilty of that as well. Like, one thing I currently spend a lot of money on is books. And a lot of people criticize me for it. But I'm just, you know, always trying to learn something new. And I personally choose to consume the content by buying new books. So, <laughs> yeah, I could definitely see your mindset on that. All right, second question. What is one skill that you have mastered up to this point that you feel has been most responsible for your successes? And what is one skill that you currently don't have that you are trying to master? I think we touched on it a little bit, um, but untangling the challenges, untangling the stuff that holds us back, I got good at that because I had a lot of challenges. And a lot of things to overcome. And I really had to figure out how to still make a tremendous amount of progress despite not having a lot of privilege and having a lot of challenges and having a lot of obstacles. So that's something that I feel like it's been really critical to my success because most people just would have said, well, my life's not going to amount to much. Like those things are crazy and it's not going to happen. But knowing how to how to continue to make quick progress despite having very real challenges is a big part of it. Something I'm still working on, or I'm currently working on, is figuring out my perfect schedule. I'm I'm trying to like ninja hack this. And my new thing is to think about all of the ingredients that would be essential to me getting where I want to go in the next 10 years and baking all of those into my schedule so that Everything that's going to be the most high leverage is just baked into the schedule. So I'm still kind of tweaking that and trying to figure that out exactly what that magical schedule looks like for me. Wow. And Jillian, you definitely don't seem like the type to just give up if something's too difficult. Like you're probably going to be accumulating new skills for as long as you live for the rest of your life. So I think that's just super powerful that you're always striving towards new highs. But moving on to question number three. Would you rather be given $500 every single day for the rest of your life or a million dollars in cash right now? I would totally do $500 a day. And I'd just love to hear your reasoning. Because our net worth is already pretty close to a million. And the difference between one million and two million actually isn't that significant. But a million dollars is a choice. And it's a responsibility and it's a lot of work. 
And $500 a day feels like a more manageable chore for me to deal with. Okay. Awesome answer. All right, Dylan. The final question is going to be a wild card question. So this is something that we're just coming up with on the fly, and we'd love to see you tackle it. The fourth and final question, Julian, you talked about, you know, investing yourself and learning. What would you say is the most expensive investment that you've invested in your personal development in the last year? Well, I always encourage people because this is super terrifying. So my rule of thumb is to invest 1% of your income or 10% of your savings. So if you're able to save $1,000 a month, $100 $100 a month should be going directly into your growth and development. And that's like, that's like the first baby step. And then you can, you can kind of go crazy after that. <laughs> um, so this year, let's see, I spent $6,000 on a course. Wow. <laughs> Woo! And I spent probably about $4,000 working out with a personal trainer. Which I would say is half towards my health and my strength. The other half, I feel like, is direct growth in my mindset and in my business. One of my daily affirmations is I do hard things. And my personal trainer, Nate, tests that limit every single time. I have to tell myself that like 20 times while I'm working out with him. Because he has me do ridiculously hard things. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. And then I get to the very end and I'm like, oh, God, thank God we're finally done. And he's like, no, we're doing five sets, not three. Like you have two more sets to go. And there's something about digging that well. When you come to the very end of your rope, when you're totally exhausted, when you're totally discouraged, when you feel a little defeated, to reset your mindset and be like, I do hard things. And dig a little deeper and you just figure out what you're made of. You figure out how much you have. And then I apply all of that directly to my family life and my relationships and my work and all the ways I'm stretching myself and growing in those areas. Yeah, I honestly believe that's one of my personal struggle points. Like I hate spending money on things just in general. It's a really bad take and I don't know, I just always feel like I'm going to get scammed and I always try to learn things myself and I know it's a limiting belief because like there are really helpful courses out there that you do pay for. Like you, sometimes you do actually get what you pay for even though there are unfortunately some scams out there where you end up spending money, you don't really learn anything but I don't know, that's something I'm, I'm really struggling with right now because I do everything for our website, like I learn everything and I'm just so hard-headed about it and... I think I could definitely learn from adopting the mindset you have, spending that 10% rule on personal development instead of just, I can do this by myself. I'm smart enough. I can figure it out. I can use Google and YouTube. It's 2018. You know, it's just kind of a limiting belief, I think. Well, and it comes from the idea that money is very scarce, but time and energy are unlimited. And the reality is the opposite. Your time and your energy are the most scarce limited things that you have in your life. Money you can make more of. Money can compound all on its own, but your time and your energy. So yeah, there's some stuff out there that I could spend probably a hundred hours, a thousand hours and figure it out with me and Google. And I could sort through, I could take the energy to sort through everything and try to create my own plan. But that time and energy, like those are my most precious commodities and they're just better invested someplace else than saving 200 bucks. No, I totally agree. I I definitely have to work on it. So this has just been amazing to just sit here and speak with you, Jillian. I mean, your values, your philosophy, your finances, everything about your story is just so compelling and so inspirational. So thank you for everything you do and thank you for spending the time with us on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Yeah, this is a blast. So that was Jillian from Montana Money Adventures. And I hope you guys are just as blown away by her story as TJ and I were. I mean, she has done so many incredible things, and she just crushes limiting belief after limiting belief. So let's look at the key takeaways from today's episode. Key takeaway number one, start your financial journey as early as possible. Money mistakes definitely hurt a lot less when you're young and the sums are small, and Jillian actually allows her children to understand the power of money by making these money mistakes themselves. 
but instead of thousands of dollars, it's maybe $5 that they spent on a toy or candy bar that they didn't really want. It's never too early to start learning about personal finance. Okay, so key takeaway number two, conserve your quote-unquote cares. So Jillian only has a finite number of cares each day. I'm sure you could plug that in with a different word, but let's stick with cares. <laughs> and she saves each care for the things that are truly important to her. And she does not let the minutia bog her down. And I think that's just so important because she's not spreading herself too thin. She's using all of her energy and focus to work on the things that truly matter to her. So next is key takeaway number three. And that is to design a life that is so aligned with your passions and values that you never want to retire. And this was something that Jillian actually said as a retort to me asking, Hey Jillian, like when are you going to retire? You're already at five. Why don't you just quit what you're doing? And she explained that she is so content with the life that she has right now because she has aligned her passions and values with her daily activities to the best of her ability. And if you study yourself and understand what makes you happy, you can do the same thing. A key takeaway number four, stop swatting at the spiderwebs and focus on killing the spiders. So oftentimes we misdiagnose our own problems and we end up fighting the wrong battles. We waste energy trying to fix something that is not actually the core problem. So Jillian describes these misdiagnosed problems as spiderwebs. And if we can actually drill down to the core, what is causing all these spiderwebs to come about, we can attack and squash the real problem. So finally, key takeaway number five, your time and energy are your most scarce and limited resources. Many people, including myself in the past, have thought that money is our scarcest commodity. And I think that's something that's true in the FI community is that people have kind of changed this paradigm and realized that that is not the scarcest commodity. Our time and our energy are so much more valuable than money because they are so very scarce. So once you understand this fact, you might stop trading money for things that don't bring you absolute joy or things that just don't align with your passions 100%. This is something that Jillian does in her money coaching sessions and in her mini retirement course that's still going on now. And I will definitely toss a link in the show notes to her course because I have heard great reviews about the things that she has done for other people's lives. So definitely check that out if you're interested. There will be a link in the show notes and I will also link an episode summary, key takeaways, and all of the links that we talked about in this episode in the show notes at firebelowzero.com slash Jillian. So thanks again for listening, guys. If you liked what you heard, please leave a rating, review, and subscribe. It really helps us out. This has been another episode of the Fire Below Zero podcast, a cooler approach to financial independence. <laughs> <laughs>